asking the right question can greatly impact your future. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional? Certified financial planner certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When she came to the U.S. as Ukraine's ambassador, Oksana Markarova could not have anticipated becoming a fixture on American TV. But the career finance expert also could not have anticipated that she would be a wartime ambassador, representing her besieged country after Putin's brutal invasion. I spoke with Ambassador Markarova this week about the war, her beloved country, and her own journey to this fateful moment. Here's that conversation. Ambassador, honored to be with you. Thanks so much for joining me today. I know uh, you are on a 24-7 schedule over there, adapting to two time zones. So thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Look forward to talking to you. So Americans have become familiar with you uh, because you have you are the principal spokesman for Ukraine in our country, and you're on television quite a bit. But I don't want, and we will get to the current issues uh, of the war. But I really am interested in you and your uh, story, which isn't as well known. So, if you'll indulge me, let, let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, talk about your family. I think. One of your parents is uh, Ukrainian, another uh, from Armenia. Tell me about that and, and tell me about your folks and growing up in Ukraine and uh, before the end of the Soviet Union. So the perspective that you bring there. Yeah, that's correct. My mom is Ukrainian from uh, uh, southern Ukraine, from Odessa region. Uh, she grew up on a farm and then went ahead, graduated from university. My father, as he used to call him, uh, is the Armenian son of Ukrainian nation. She mm -hmm. uh, graduated <laughs> from university in, actually in Baku. His family is from mountainous Karabakh. And uh, then he also started his work in Western Ukraine. That's where they met. So I was raised in a, a family which uh, always was multinational from the one hand, but very patriotic Ukrainian on the other hand. And that included my father who spoke uh, beautiful Ukrainian. In addition to all, all, all the languages that he knew. And of course, you know, during the Soviet times, everyone was forced to learn Russian. So we all, uh, in addition to our native languages, also spoke Russian, especially in Ukraine, you know, the Russification, but equally so in Armenia and other places have been quite strong. But yes, I, I, the majority of my school years were during the time when Ukraine was still under Soviet occupation. What are your memories of that period? Well, there was, uh, first of all, the, the end of the Soviet Union until 1991. It was a very interesting time when uh, people back home already were talking about independence, craved independence. Uh, but then back in high school, there was still all this uh, pioneers and comfortable, you know, nonsense and uh, lots of brainstorming. Again, specifically, I was uh, uh, born and raised in Rivne, which is northwestern Ukraine. And there was a lot of classes where the teachers, probably some of them were not uh, completely uh, free of the KGB ties, 
you know, have been trying to feed us still all the Soviet propaganda as Soviet Union was uh, getting to collapse. So it was a very interesting experience. I mean, of course, it's childhood. So you remember about your childhood. Not only that, you remember how you played and my summers at the farm. You know, that's a region with hard work as on any farm, but also lots of fun with your friends, you know, animals. But there was this always this divide between what is told in school and what you hear back home. Yeah, what was the conversation at home about all of that? Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, where you, you listen to your teachers at school. And again, not all teachers were trying to brainwash you, of course. You know, I, I loved mass. I loved uh, all the uh, science classes, which were more free of the propaganda. But then, uh, you know, of course, you know, in during that time, they would try to teach the Russian literature as more interesting literature as compared to the Ukrainian literature, for example. And of course, I would come home and discuss it with with parents. And uh, especially during teenage years, like you, your, your mom or your father tells you, well, you know, this is, read this, this is, this is great. But, you know, don't tell at school that we gave you to read this because there were still so many Ukrainian authors who were prohibited. And uh, yes, it wasn't as horrible as it was just 10 years before that when people were jailed for doing that. But still, you know, it, it was very, very difficult. And uh, I understand that, you know, parents by recommending even to read something like this or give this self-printed books, you know, not like books, but something that their friend gave them to read, you know, and uh, it it was uh, a bit of the risk and they were trying to educate and inform us, but at the same time warn us from being too um, fighting and, and too... Too aggressive, huh? Too aggressive in school and not to be, you know, like thrown out or something like this. I remember one of my close friends whose uh, father was a priest. And uh, and we had, I still remember, it was a long time ago, but I remember how teachers found out that he wears a cross under their pioneer tie. And they put him in front of all the class and they tried to, not even embarrass, but harass him actually, for like believing in God who doesn't exist, you know. And, you know, it's, you know, all these little memories. Like uh, I remember how, for example, I was uh, Christian. Because it happened uh, when I already was eight, and I and it, was, it happened when I was at my grandma's. So uh, it's you know this something that when you think about it, you know something that in societies like the U.S. you 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 take it for granted. This is normal to live free, to speak what you want to say, to to believe uh, who you want to believe, to love who you want. You know something that should be a part of the you know normal person of, you know, dignity, freedom. But all of that, of course, again, I, I just have to to tell you that during, during young years, you don't put too much attention to that. And then, of course, you know, I remember with my parents being at the, you know, chain where people were expressing their uh, solidarity and, uh, you know, all Ukrainians from west to east were in this uh, one day standing in a in the chain holding hands expressing, and there were already some meetings to which parents would take us. So, um, you know, just glimpses of looking at and remembering this fight for independence through children's eyes, you know, like it's not that I was taking active part in it. Yeah. And then after the independence, of course, difficult time, you know, when there was shortage of everything. 
you know, the early 90s. I, I graduated from, from high school in 1993 and then went to study to Kiev, to Kiev Mahila. But before that, a couple of years have been really difficult, again, for the parents because as kids, I, I remember these long lines. I remember going with parents because they were given products, only a certain amount per person. So all parents had to take their kids with them if they wanted to get a little bit more meat. And it's it, it was difficult, but again, the parents made it. I don't remember. I remember when I read about it. So I remember the lines. I remember, you know, the hardship. I remember the a little bit of loneliness, you know, when it was a bit scary to walk to, to school, you know, during this uh, first uh, first years, but but then again, your, my parents always made sure that we had something to eat, you know. And uh, my mom uh, did my clothes, you know. She she would uh, try to use her clothes to get to 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 do some good, you know, nice dresses for me. So uh, it was very difficult. And now being an adult and being a mother, I understand how many sacrifices actually they all did in order for us to have a little bit more yeah. than both, both my parents were chemical engineers, you know, so they were one job, they, a hard work, very intellectual work, which would, in country like the United States, would uh, uh, generate pretty comfortable living for them, but, but not at that time in Soviet Union or in Ukraine. When the Soviet Union collapsed, what was the mood in your family? What do you remember about that? Well, it was... I wouldn't call it euphoria, but it was joy beyond, you know, it was, it was something that parents discussed with their friends before that happens. It was something when they talked to each other, called each other before the referendum, talking to others, you know, you have to go, you have to vote, you have to. It was such a period of, even among people who did not have like freedom or independence fighters in their families, but people who understood that at that time already, that it was our historic chance. So um, even when there was this very difficult years, and I remember again, as a, as, a, as a kid, you, you know, we had a lot of people over at our house. My father and my mom liked to invite people over for any holidays, you know, or for weekends just to, or we would go several families to um, like trips to the forest or berry picking or something like this. And you hear what your parents are talking about with death. So even when it was very difficult, I remember this recurrent, you know, kind of message, it's difficult, but we're free now. So there was never a discussion that, oh, you know, it was a little bit easier when we were occupied or when we were this big Soviet, whatever, empire, you know. It was never that. It was, yes, it's difficult. Yes, you know, challenges. But the recurrent message was, you know, we're free at last. You came to the United States, you, you went to Kiev and you studied, and then you came to the United States and you came under something called a Muskie Fellowship, I think. Yeah, and you went to Indiana University and you got a master's degree in public finance. How did that all come about? What, how did you, I think you were doing environmental studies in uh, yes. Kiev. How, how did you come to uh, move into that area and how did you come to the U.S.? You know, growing up in a family with two chemical engineers, uh, as you might imagine, I didn't have a lot of uh, choices <laughs> in discussions around the table what my future profession should be. Uh, and, uh, you know, the salt on, in our house was passed around the table saying, can you please uh, pass my father with joke natrium uh, um, chlorides, you know, to 
So they were, they were always kind of, I, I was growing up thinking that there are real professions like science and everything else. So that's why when I was choosing <laughs> my first, uh, when I was looking where to go after school, you know, there were two, two, uh, choices where I was trying to, to get this Kiyomahila Academy uh, and, and Lviv University. Uh, the applied mathematics was there in, in, in Lviv University and, uh, environmental science, the natural science, actually faculty in Kiev Mahila, which was just opened a year before I, I got into it. And it was, again, I understand the big choice also for my parents to support it because it wasn't fully certified yet, but it's a very meaningful and historic place. It's one of the oldest universities in, uh, in Ukraine, the second oldest Kiev Mahila Academy, which was, you know, celebrated already more than 400 years. It was very pro-Ukrainian always. It was closed during the Soviet times and it, it was reopened just in 1991. So, so, uh, I was doing that, but as many of the Kiev Mahila, uh, students started working pretty early. So I worked in, uh, uh, in, uh, International Foundation for Election Systems. And then I, I worked for Kimonix and then I started working for Western NAS Enterprise Fund. And uh, during all this, I, I realized that I really like finance and I really like uh, to do that, but but I lacked proper education and I knew that I, I wanted uh, a very good education in that. And then I learned about this program, Muskie Fellowship Program, which is actually an excellent initiative uh, by uh, by Edmund Muskie, which helped so many people. The former Secretary of State. Yeah. Yes, to study in the U.S., and uh, the process of, uh, to get into it was, was very difficult. You know, lots of tests, much competition. You didn't choose universities, actually, in that program. Uh, you applied for the specific field of study, and I wanted to do public finance. Uh, and, uh, but, but then the university picks you. So it was the IU, Indiana University, that picked me. And it was uh, a, 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 a choice made in heaven. You know, I really loved it. Two years in Bloomington, great school, one of the top schools in public finance, excellent professors. I still in contact with some of them. Uh, very good people. Uh, you know, I loved Midwest. It reminded me Ukraine, especially my, uh, you know, rural part of the yes, yeah, yes. Uh, family. You know, it, it felt like home. And yet it was a top grade university with a school where I have seen all the musicals and I love music. Uh -huh. uh, so I seen rent and everything which just came <laughs> out, you know, and it was, it was great. And it gave me a, a big understanding and, and love to this country. Yeah. It must be useful now to have had that experience. Although I'm not sure there's any experience that can fully explain America right now, but it must have been helpful to have had those two years here. Absolutely. U.S. was never completely foreign to me after the two years in IU. And then I, I worked a little bit in D.C., after that, and then came back home. You chose public finance. I mean, one of the great challenges after the Soviet Union fell was developing civil society in Eastern Europe and countries in Eastern Europe, and the other is a market economy. Tell me about that, about the struggles that you faced. You know, in 2001, when I graduated with public finance, but I joined the private sector. I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't see myself in Ukraine that time working for the government. And the reason is after the uh, breakup of the Soviet Union, the market economy was introduced to us very quickly. But 
the rule of law was not there. Uh, the institutions that we had were not Ukrainian institutions. We never had them. Ukraine was occupied for more than 400 years. We always had somebody else's institutions. So not only it, it generated big distrust of Ukrainians in government in general, but also we didn't have efficient institutions. So we had this hand-me-downs from the Soviet Union. So without rule of law, without their good institutions, and with uh, civil society, which I think Ukraine always had. You know, if you look at our independence, the reason we were able to fight for it is because Ukrainians, again, in the situation with, occupa with occupation for a couple of hundred years, with government being foreign, you could only trust people around you. So this bonds and ties with people in your village, people in your city, people in your office, people in, they have been very strong. And Ukrainian, Ukraine is a democracy and it's deeply rooted. This, this, this has, this differentiated us from Russians for a long time. You know, we, we have this joke, you know, where you have uh, uh, two Ukrainians, there are three hetmans, you know, meaning three leaders. But, but it's only a half joke is that Ukrainians are not shy to tell people in power what we think. Ukrainians are always discussing something. Uh, if you look at our history from Kiev and Rus, the majority of decisions were always made on Maidan. So this notion of Maidan, and now everyone knows this word because of the two revolutions, but it's actually something very traditional for Ukraine. You wait for the government to do the right thing. If they don't, people gather on Maidan and they change the government. They, and that's where they discuss it. So this, uh, we're very individualistic in a European way, but then we get together as the community to discuss and decide, and it's a very democratic fashion. So, you know, the, the, the civil society was vibrant, but not yet powerful at the beginning of 90s. Uh, the market economy came with all their pluses, but also, you know, minuses if you don't have the institutions or rule of law. So that's why early on the economy was grabbed by uh, the new oligarchs, the Russian interests, which again, never from the day one, and, and Putin has been very open about it, that, you know, that the, the, the solution of the Soviet Union has been the biggest tragedy in their minds. We were very glad, but we underestimated how much they will still be working against our independence. And at the beginning, in all the 90s, it was not a military aggression like we see now, but it was to undermine, to capture several areas of economy, to make sure that we cannot become independent, to make sure that we will not repeat the Poland or other countries' path, which quickly joined NATO, which quickly started moving towards Europe, which developed their vibrant economy in order to be independent and self-sustainable. So. So it was on the one hand, a little bit of wild, wild west, you know, there were a number of really great Ukrainian companies that were created at that time, but the competition was not there, Dante, you know, so, and it was just more. Well, and corruption has been a persistent problem, uh, not just in Ukraine, but elsewhere as this transition happened, but that's clearly been a problem. Absolutely. But this oligarchization, demonopolization, Russian interests, closeness, you know, the political elite who yesterday were Soviets, today became Ukrainians uh, and, and continued, you know, this party, communist party function years or, or consumable member function years that transitioned into market economy uh, uh, people for their own good only, mm -hmm. that all created this very nurturing uh, environment for corruption. 
So we actually only after 2000, well, the first kind of wake up call was the, when, when Russians tried to steal our elections in 2004. Yeah. The orange revolution. Exactly. So if you look at the history of modern Ukraine after the first revolution was the revolution on granite when, when students fought for independence, then it was orange revolution. It was pure revolution for democracy because it was about election and free and fair elections and defending their votes. And then we had 2014, which was all of that, plus uh, already, you know, we, we saw it very clearly that it was against not only oligarchs, but the Russian influence and against uh, stealing our choice for the European future because the president then decided to turn away from right. the idea of European integration. Right. Yanukovych and ultimately slipped across the border to, to Russia at the end of that whole period. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards, and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified Financial Planner Certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's Chief Medical Correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. What were you doing during this time? I know you were involved in private equity and you were, you were investing and so on. What were you doing during these periods politically? Were you at all active? Did you keep a distance? I was very active with my husband in both revolutions. So in 2004, we were active participants of the Orange Revolution. In 2014, from day one, you know, like I... Uh, I have back home the emails that my former company, both actually former companies I worked at that time, gave me a frames of the emails that I sent when Orange Revolution started and when uh, also the Revolution of Dignity started. And in both, you know, there was my emails to all the uh, employees saying that, you know, if you want to support it, you can do it even during the work time. You will not be like, you can, you can do it and let's, Let's, uh, you know, I'm, I was not going to push them to do it, of course, because that also was not, but I wanted to make it clear that there'd be no punishment for doing it. There would be no punishment and whatever support they might need, the company will provide to them. So in 2015, you, you did go into government. What prodded you to enter government? You came in as deputy finance minister. What, what was it that provoked you to say, okay, I'll go inside? Well, it was not what, it was who. I couldn't say no to Natalie Reskov. Uh -huh. who took the position of the finance minister. Uh, she was offered that position and she called me one day and she said, what are you doing next week? And I said, <laughs> that's, you know, working, fighting, helping, you know, people on the front. And she said, well, 
how about you come and work as my deputy minister? I was offered this position and I'm going to take it. And I said, oh, well, you know, I don't know. I have the company, I have the family, I have everything. And then she said, well, consider it's a draft, you know, like people are volunteering to fight on the front lines. Uh, the company is in really bad shape. You know, literally in 2014, we had a day when a country of almost uh, 40 million had 10,000 euros on the single treasury account. The public finance was in complete disarray after Yanukovych not only ran out, but, you know, the years of his governance really robbed the country blind. The deficit was almost 10%. You know, it was it was really, and we needed to restructure and uh, negotiate new programs. So she said, one year only, come serve your country for one year, and then you can go back to your uh, position. And that's how I started my five-year service <laughs> as the deputy minister first, and first deputy minister, and then ultimately minister of finance. See, when you get recruited for these jobs, they should have told you, it's like when your kids say, I'll be there in five minutes when they're out playing. And they show up a half an hour later. There's a different measure when they say, just do one year. It rarely ends up as one year. I should point out that Natalie uh, Juresko is a uh, proud uh, Chicagoan as well as Ukrainian. And she's, and she, we were all so thrilled when she took a leadership role. They later went on to help try and save the finances of Puerto Rico. So really a kind of a heroic figure in, in that regard. You stayed, as you mentioned, you became finance minister. The president for whom you were working, Poroshenko, won in 2015, lost in 2019, and he lost to, to uh, President Zelensky, who, when he started running, was a television star, a comedian. You must have been familiar with him from TV. Well, he wasn't. Uh, I know a lot of people phrase him as a frame him as a star. But he was a producer of all the shows as well. And I think that's what a lot of people miss, that he ran his own very successful business. It was a, a self-made uh, company and he was a self-made man. Uh, I actually didn't know President Zelensky before we met when I was already was a finance minister and he was elected. And, uh, you know, our team, we were part with Natalie, with other of technocrats who came not because of their political affiliations. Mm -hmm. I was never a member of any party, but uh, because, you know, during, uh, in 2015, there was need for the technocrats to come and do, and there were a number of people who came from business, from other positions, from international organizations, joined the government. So when President Zelensky won our government, because in Ukraine, it's the parliamentary election that actually leads right. to the change of government. So the prime minister then, and our government continued to work. And we had a couple of months that we actively worked with President Zelensky. And that's how we met. What were your impressions of him as you watched this campaign unfold? And what were your impressions of him once you started working with him? And was there a difference between the two? Did you learn some things about him when you started working with him that you did not suspect when he was running? Well, of course, because campaign is one thing. You only see... Uh, the public message. And when you start working with someone, especially, you know, with um, the finance is the area where you meet a lot with the president and uh, there are a lot of deep uh, issues and, and important issues to discuss. And uh, uh, president really surprised me as uh, someone who uh, asked a lot and always wanted to get to the bottom of things and uh, was uh, very, you know, like, not what you would expect from a person from the entertainment industry. 
but was, as I said, a very a serious organizer, very always on time. You know, I always take note of people, uh, whether they're organized or not. And, uh, you know, President Zelensky, I think a lot of people noticed when he was elected that um, he was never late. He was always uh, according to the schedule. And it's kind of respect, you know, to, to, to all the people. And, um, you know, there were a lot of things that he had to deal with at the same time. And uh, there was first international visits and so many, so many different plans. But of course, you know, it's, uh, I only had my area of uh, responsibility. Uh, other people like the parliamentarians, the head of faction, the prime minister and others had much more, you know, discussions with the president. But, you know, we, uh, everything we have discussed when he suggested me to stay in his new government, you know, it is it was exactly what Ukraine needed, you know, and we, it, it was, I wouldn't say, like, you cannot say, uh, you know, uh, the, the work is difficult, but um, it was, as for the Minister of Finance, we always worked very constructively. I just want to jump ahead for a second, and then we'll, we'll go back, because I don't want to lose the, the thread of your narrative here. But he has obviously become a historic figure for the way he's led through this war, and the world has become familiar with him. I don't know that you can ever predict how people are going to handle pressures like that. There were those who urged him to leave the country so that Putin couldn't decapitate the government. Uh, he did not. Talk about the role that he's played and what it has meant to the country. And obviously, you're you're in the government, you're his ambassador. But I, I I'm counting on you to give me a an authentic read on this. What what has he meant to the country? Now, look, I think the moment when President after February twenty fourth got his telephone out and recorded that message that I'm here, everyone is here. We are not going to surrender. We are not going to leave. And he stayed in the country to fight with his people, to lead his people, and to take all the risks that all Ukrainians have taken at that specific particular moment is a historic moment. And of course, there are many elements to our successful fight, and I'm sure to our successful victory. But his leadership in this, which already has been quoted so many times and appreciated. And there are so many awards that he has received in the United States from all the foundations, from Reagan Institute, from, you know, pretty much from Atlantic Council, from so many organizations that study and, and uh, you know, uh, discuss and praise leadership is overwhelming. But I think for all of us, you know, it has been a very critical ingredient together with our brave defenders, together with the civil society, together with, uh, uh, you know, all Ukrainians doing everything possible, together with our strategic partners, especially in the U.S., that in this specific moment. But the fact that we had a president who's brave, and that's not something you can learn. You're either brave or you're not. And unfortunately, you can predict as much as you want to. And I'm sure people who knew very well president knew how brave he is. But we all have seen how brave he is after 24th. And this bravery, together with actually his super skill, being super communicator. Yeah, that's, I wanted to ask about that, yeah. 
and and he transformed actually the role of the leader of the country during this time because if you look at you know many people would say this is not what uh the the leader of the country you know usually does right talking directly to people not only talking directly to people in your own country but rallying the people in every other country talking directly to the people on the streets in in Poland addressing Congress, addressing, uh, you know, uh, all the parliaments from, from Germany mm-hmm. to he, his communication style, his willingness to communicate, his actually capabilities to actually communicate. Imagine so many speeches every day. I mean, all of us who have to, who have to give interviews and speak sometimes, uh, and all for people uh, in real sector and people in, uh, Working in the fields, you know, and farmers, when you say that it's tiring to to say speeches, they're like, oh, come on, you know, it's not like you are working in the, in the, you know, doing something with your hands, but it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of, and the fact that he is, he has this engagement sometimes up to 10 per day, but that actually also was a very important element of not only getting information out, not only countering Russian propaganda and false news, not only rallying the people and also getting the, our friends and allies and also people who were neutral at the beginning to make them see why this fight is important for all of us, why Ukraine is the, 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 the side of light here, why it was totally unprovoked. Why there is only one aggressor, Russia, and Ukraine is a victim, but the victim that is fighting. So, um, you know, his role, I'm sure it's already, uh, I, mean, I know it's already been uh, studied, you know, just uh, yesterday we had a discussion here about the new book uh, published mm-hmm. by two scientists, uh, you know, Ukrainian in Great Britain and uh, American, which called uh, which is called the Zelensky Effect. Yeah. And there are so many others, and I'm sure it will be studied in the future. But right now, for the president, and you see here, much looking much older, looking tired sometimes, looking concerned, looking uh, completely devastated. If you look at his pictures in Bucha or in Izum, looking at his pictures in all the places on the front line where he's uh, courageously going literally every other week, you know, and, and you, you understand that there is only one, you know, goal for him to win. Yeah. This is everything he's focusing on. So it's, Do you worry about his safety? You know, we just saw the fate that Prigozhin met. Putin, obviously his goal at the beginning of this was to decapitate the government in Ukraine. Do you worry about his safety? We Ukrainians have no illusions about Russians. If they could, they would eliminate and kill all of us. And, uh, you know, when president said, I'm staying, I'm fighting with the country, for the country, uh, he took that risk knowingly. And of course, I mean, I, I, I have high trust in our armed forces and in our security forces. And we all uh, pray for the safety of our president. Uh, but we just have to understand. Look at what Russians are doing. They are they are targeting the kindergartens. They are targeting the residential areas. Today they shut the one of the supermarkets in Kiev, which I used to go to when I when I lived back home. So it's it's just 
nobody is completely safe in Ukraine on the one hand. And on the other hand, this is the reason why we have to double down and put all our efforts together and all our partners, you know, we are really praying and, and asking them to give us more weapons and more sanctions to Russia so that we can win and return to just peace as soon as possible. Yeah. The, I wanted to ask you about that because, the, you know, the toll has been extraordinary. Millions of people have uh, have had to flee. Uh, you've lost, uh, you know, tens and tens of thousands of civilians and, and obviously uh, your military forces. Your military forces are one third of that of Russia. And now we're in the 18th month. Talk about the urgency of time and not just the will of the Ukrainian people, but the will of the American people, the will of others around the world, because it seems like that's what Putin's counting on, that uh, he will out just outweigh everyone. Thank you. Yes, today is 553rd day of this horrible, full-fledged phase of the war. But then let me again remind that the war started in 2014, mm -hmm. and it's already been very difficult, almost 10 years, that Ukraine is... Uh, uh, defending itself from hard period, you know, when they illegally occupied Crimea and parts of Donetsk and Lugansk, then all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, hybrids when there was, they were killing people every year. I mean, we have lost 14,000 before this full-fledged war started. Uh, and, uh, and then all kinds of other malign uh, influence and activities that Russia has been doing and preparing for this full-fledged war. So it's, um, on the one hand, it's very difficult. On the other hand, uh, and I always say that we are so grateful to all our friends and partners, but especially to the United States, to all people here from President Biden to administration, to Congress on a very strong bipartisan basis, but also to every American, really every American that stood with us, supported us, provided so much needed support or supported Congress providing us with uh, everything that we have needed during this time. And yes, it is a game of sustainment now. Can we sustain the effort? I mean, for Ukraine, of course we can sustain the effort. It's existential for us. We understand that it's, it's a make it or break it moment for us. It's the fight. Again, we started our discussion about how we became independent. But this is, you know, generations of Ukrainians working and fighting towards that moment. And and now we understand that this is our fight for independence and existence. But it's also for everyone who believes in the same values, for everyone who believes in de in, in democracy, for everyone who believes in uh you know freedom and and being able to live like you want to live and being able to elect your government and change your government on a regular basis. This is existential fight for all of us. So yes, we have to show that we can outlast him. Yes, we have to stay the course, as military people say. And uh, there is no other way for all of us than to win. Now, you know, it's difficult. The front line is one of the largest front lines since mm -hmm. the World War II. It's also the summer campaign in which we are now since June is, according to the majority of military experts, not only Ukrainian, according to the General Million Secretary Austin, is the hardest military operation since the World War II. It's difficult. It's uh, uh, 
uh, dangerous. It's uh, we are fighting against the enemy, which is much larger and has no red lines. But yet, during this difficult two months of the summer campaign, we never lost a ground. We are steadily and deliberately liberating our land. The initiative is on our side. The truth is on our side. So it is difficult. But what is the other option? There is no other option. I, I understand this. And I should say parenthetically that my, my father uh, grew up in Houghton in Ukraine and uh, fled uh, uh, with his family when he was 10 years old uh, from persecution of Jews right after the Russian Revolution and came here to get, to, to get what you're talking about. They came here to find freedom and the ability to worship as they wanted to and to have control over their own lives and be part of a, a democracy. So you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. I want to talk practical politics. I watched a, a Republican debate last week. Me too. Yeah, I'm sure you did. I'm sure you watched with interest. And there, were, there was a very big division on that platform, as you know. Some candidates, in fact, candidates, the three leading candidates, one of them wasn't there, have all said they would, they would stop uh, funding the war. There were others who vehemently disagreed, but is there is there an imperative to sort of make big gains here, not just to end the suffering that your the Ukrainian people have uh, endured so far, which has been enormous, but also to resolve this so that the political will doesn't flag among Americans and Europeans. Uh, so yes, I, I watched the debate very carefully and uh, I, uh, of course, will try to answer it in a very diplomatic way. As yeah, I, I'd, I'd expect nothing less. Uh, well, I cannot comment on the internal politics, but I, I, I can say that I was very glad when there was a question that Brad asked about, uh, he asked to raise hands who would not support the funding and it was only one hand. And yes, there are different diff different opinions. And again, it's uh, it's totally fine for people to have different opinions. But I still feel that the majority of Americans, uh, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, that they understand this fight and they support this fight. Again, it's not just because it's it's our lives that are lost. It's the tortures. It's the violation of the international law. But it's also because I think Americans are people who believe in justice in general. And when you see a bully. And this is, this is what it is, who is acting aggressively and, and doing what normal people should not do. The, the first instinct of Americans is actually to stand up and fight with the bully and defend dignity and defend people who are fighting. Now, 
I understand there are different priorities. As the finance mm -hmm. minister, I understand that there are finite resources. But look at the American security and, and uh, national security uh, doctrines and, and interests. Is Russia a friend? No, Russia is an enemy. It's an enemy of anyone who believes in democracy, who believes in freedom. Uh, we are doing what is completely in accordance with the American security interests. We are defending ourselves, but we are, we are also uh, making Russia less aggressive uh, for the future. And we need to win in order for them to get out from Ukraine, to get back into their own territory and mind their own business. Talk about their country, develop their country, which is actually in a very poor state to start with. So uh, the, the transatlantic security. U.S. is a, a very important member of the transatlantic family. U.S. under Article 5 has an obligation to defend any other NATO country. Now, if Russia, if we do not stop Russia in Ukraine, if Russia, God forbid, and it will not, when in Ukraine, it will embolden. They will not stop in Ukraine. They will go ahead and attack. And frankly, we just have to listen to what Putin is saying. He was pretty open about it. And the majority of people around him. So from any perspective you look at it, from the human moral perspective, it's the right thing to help us to win. From the uh, national security perspective, from the efficiency perspective, you know, every dollar that is uh, used to help Ukraine. And again, we are not getting the money. We're getting the goods which are produced here in the U.S. It's jobs created mm -hmm. here in the U.S. But, you know, it's uh, every dollar that you spend now, it's... Uh, a multiple of that, that you will not have to spend in order to protect other European allies or yourself from Russia. So, you know, and plus it sends a message mm -hmm. that international rules matter and sends a message to other aggressive states that might contemplate their aggressive grabs in the future. Like China. You said that. Okay. I, I just want to tell you, and then I want to ask specifically about the goods that you're talking about that are going to Ukraine. But I spend quite a bit of time in, in rural Michigan, not that far from where you went to school. Uh, and I was walking along the road the other day and a, a neighbor of mine, a farmer, engaged me as he always does when I walk by. And uh, he got around to this and he said, um, you know, I don't have any, he lives in a pretty modest kind of setting there. And he said, I don't have any problem with Ukraine. I wish them well. He said, but, you know, all that money, can you imagine what that money could do here? And he said, my crop insurance isn't what it was. They're not covering much of what they used to cover. And he said, and we're giving all this money away. That's kind of what you're competing with. Not necessarily hostility, although there is some of that very little, I think, among the ex extremes, but just this sense of, and remember, we're, we're a country that's still coming off of the Iraq and Afghanistan experience where trillions of dollars were spent, and people are sensitive to that. I agree with everything you said, but I, the political reality is that. And uh, as you know, there's $20 billion that the president has requested in additional funding for Ukraine on top of the $40 billion that uh, is now being exhausted. And uh, the Speaker of the House said, well, I'm not sure about that. I don't know if that we're going to be able to do that. Every time I hear something like this, I, I take it as a need for us to explain more. 
And that's what we're doing. So I spoke with a number of farm bureaus, for example, recently in many states, and we will be doing more of that. And uh, first of all, I think we have to explain to people this package that people are talking about, 113 billion in different supplementary packages. The only money that Ukraine is getting as the money is the direct budget support. And it's the smallest amount of that. It's altogether about 20 billion. Everything else, whether it's security assistance, uh, whether it's uh, energy assistance, is actually money that are getting from the U.S. budget to the, in, in the majority to the U.S. companies or to Pentagon in order to replenish. To facilitate arms for that you need. Well, it's either we're getting the drawdowns and we're getting what you have already in stock as the weapons. And then Pentagon uses the money to buy the new upgrade that's what, what they need right now for themselves. Or it's produced for us. And there are mm-hmm. a number of companies, like uh, I meet with them on a regular basis. And I recently visited, for example, the Lima plant, uh, the, the Abrams plant in Lima, Ohio. And, uh, you know, it's, it's additional jobs. It's additional orders for, for this plant. So uh, on the agricultural, uh, especially uh, market, and I think the majority of farm bureaus we were talking about, they understand that with this war, it's Russia that is vi- destructing the agricultural market. The, the prices for the fertilizers, everything that, uh, that uh, the companies really need. We have to stop the war in order to get back to normal life. But then we have to explain to people that by surrendering, you cannot stop this war. This war can only be won. Just a last question on all of this. You know, we've heard long discussions about F-16s, the most advanced fighter jets that uh, President Zelensky has been eager for for some time, about additional missile systems that have a longer range and so on. Are you frustrated that thing that these have not come faster? And especially given the time pressures that we've talked about before, the sort of political time pressures, are you frustrated? We're never frustrated with our friends here. Really, I mean, yes, we need something faster. Yes, time is of the essence. Yes, we will try to do everything to convince and and provo- to provide us faster. But we're very grateful for every support. And with F-16s, we, as you know, our pilots already started the training. And we're discussing with a number of countries the, the transfer of the platforms. And it's actually, you know, something for, for now, but also something to build our future force that Mm -hmm. when compatible not only with everything else in Ukraine, but with NATO is going to be a great addition to our common security. I want to return to you because we we lost the thread of the narrative because you served and you left your job as finance minister. And then you were asked to return. Did you expect to go back into government? And when when you got named ambassador to the U.S., my sense was it was to promote investment economic investment in Ukraine to work on global finance issues. And like weeks after you arrived here, you found yourself as a wartime ambassador consumed by this night and day. Tell me about the decision to come back in and what it was like to realize, wow, this isn't really what I expected. So five years at the Ministry of Finance was very difficult. And when President Zelensky was changing government, I finished my position, transferred everything to the new minister, and uh, and I was very glad to come back to 
normal life. You know, uh, I even started a small startup company, not in finance, actually, in IT. And I was spending more time with my children and my husband. And, and really, it was, I actually saw that my public service was over. I had other plans. I re-engaged with, uh, at the board of the Kiev Mahila Academy, Ukrainian Catholic University help, you know, like I had all the plan that I would be doing and uh, I wasn't thinking about coming back, to be honest. But then when President Zelensky asked me to consider this uh, position, of course, I couldn't say no. So after a very brief discussion with the family, because of course, you know, this position requires all family to serve, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, COVID helped a little bit because uh, I think if not for COVID, which taught us all how we can do long distance and and, uh, virtually, uh, it would be difficult for my husband to to see how he would move to to the U.S. with his business engagements back home. But so, so, you know, I couldn't say no. And uh, yes, the idea was to take the strategic partnership, strategic friendship with our relations with, uh, with the United States to the next level. And I saw that I could do a lot in raising the strategic ties with special, of course, focus on uh, investment and, and other developments. And it wasn't weeks, you know, I arrived here in April 2021. So it was weeks before Russia started accumulating troops around the border, but not, it was almost uh, not a full year, but uh, 10 months before the full-fledged attack. And from the very beginning, it was work on strategic partnership. And we achieved actually a lot, you know, when President Zelensky came in 2021, I know everyone is focusing on this full-fledged phase now, but in 2021, in September, when President Zelensky came for the visit uh, to the White House, we actually uh, agreed to sign a new strategic charter, and we did uh, a month after that. Uh, it's a very elaborate document, which actually sets a good roadmap for the improvement of our cooperation. We also signed, uh, the document is not public itself, but the fact sheet about it is public, a, a strategic uh, defense cooperation framework mm-hmm. uh, for five years. And actually, that was a basis of a lot of cooperation and first PDA drawdowns, which were given to us even before Russia attacked uh, in February. And and there was a lot, a lot, a lot we started working on. The Axim Bank opened the finance line for $3 billion. The, the companies... I'm interrupting only because I'm respectful of your time, and I know we're going to run out of time. Ukraine got dragged, and Zelensky got dragged into, President Zelensky got dragged into, much to his chagrin, I'm sure, American government and politics uh, with the impeachment of President Trump. And there was a great deal of friction. How much was your job sort of repairing relationships after that? You know, when I came, I really uh, always felt that the relationships between us are strong. And during the first year, it was, I wouldn't say easy, of course, it requires a lot of work, but I wouldn't even use the word repair because we were just, you know, started with the basis that we have and we started building on it uh, with, again, politicians from all uh, political spectrum. So the friends we have in Congress, in both parties, in leadership of both parties, is, is the majority. And again, yes, we have difficult discussions sometimes, but... You know, I feel that we're talking with people who have the same values. I just have to ask you about your own experience now. 
your family has a home in Bucha. I know, I think your mom lived or near it. Uh, your mom uh, lived near the, your father-in-law, I guess, there. Everyone remembers that that was when the Russians were forced out on their march to Kiev and forced back. What was left there was a genocide, a massacre that was just shocking. You've been back. What has it been like for you? What has it been like for your family? What has it been like for your children to absorb all of this? Again, I think of my dad, and I think he lived his life with PTSD because of the experience he had as a as a child. Tell me what this has meant to you personally and to your family. Well, first of all, we all do have PTSD, and that's why I'm very grateful to First Lady that she put special emphasis on the mental health problems and, and actually developing holistic programs programs to address it uh, throughout so that we can deal with it and move forward in the future, especially. But uh, yes, you know, this personal experience, that's what differentiates all Ukrainian diplomats from, from Russian diplomats, for example, that they can afford to lie about it and to say that something was staged and you just want to, you know, do something to them because you know that at that particular moment, your village is under occupation and you know what, what happens there. So uh, it's, it's the story of all Ukrainians. Uh, for me, you know, my husband left, uh, the day when, when it all started. The next day he flew back home. On the one hand, it was difficult for me and, uh, you know, additional worry about him, but I knew he couldn't do it the other way around. And plus he was able to save my mom and, and his sister and their family and my now late father-in-law who died this year and moved them literally hours before. Uh, Russians took over uh, our part of Bucha. You know, it's called Warzer, but administratively it's part of Bucha. Mm -hmm. You know, they returned as soon as they can. My mom lives there now, our relatives, the rest of the family is there. I visited several times, you know, during the time, during this difficult 32 days when everything was under occupation, in, when, I, when I had time to sleep, in my, in my dreams, I was working in my house. And thinking, why didn't I take, you know, the first prints of my of my children hands or or, or feet, you know? Why didn't I why didn't I take these photos which I didn't have time to digitalize at least some of them, you know? I was, you know, thanks God my my house was not destroyed. My father in law's house was severely destroyed. Uh, in in my case, you know, the the missile came between the house and and the garage, you know. So. Um, you know, lots of trees, but uh, little damage, but nothing, nothing serious. And uh, it's more painful. It was more painful to learn when I came for the first time after it was liberated in April when Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin first time visited Ukraine in April 2022, when all these Russian tanks were still there and all the cars, uh, civilian cars, with, with holes. And, uh, you know, of course, without, you could not see the blood anymore, but but you could imagine it, you know, with all the buildings. And on my street, you know, uh, if you go down uh, closer to, to through the butcher, you know, it's uh, in some areas of that street. Um, there is even a movie about it, Yablunska Street. Some, there is like every building is destroyed, you know, and you see it and you understand that it's, uh, and to see the pictures, you know, of, of, of this, it's, it's just something that we will never forget. And something that is going to be very difficult uh, to completely get used to, 
So even 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 now when I come back, you know, I've been back already four times uh, since the full-fledged war just recently at the beginning of August. It, it looks much better now because because of the trees, because of the green, because of the flowers. Some houses have been repaired. Some were not, but, you know, it's not as raw and painful as it was right in April. But but still, you know, you remember, you know, who, of your, who out of your neighbors are no longer there because they were killed during this time. Uh, and then it also constant reminder that, yes, my, my um, town was liberated after 32 days. But there are, pl- there are places in Ukraine which are under occupation for 17 months. And during the 17 months, people have been raped and tortured and killed there. And there is places, there are places like Crimea, Donetsk, and Lugansk, which have been occupied for almost 10 years. And people have been killed and tortured and raped for 10 years there. It just, this is what gives us strength, regardless of how difficult it is, to keep moving and to do everything possible and sometimes impossible to get all the weapons, to get all the sanctions, to liberate as much as we can, as soon as we can, so we can stop the suffering. Ambassador, you are a very, very eloquent and passionate and impactful advocate for your country. And I know there are times when you must feel like, why am I here when I should be there? But what you're doing here is uh, extraordinarily important. And I appreciate your time today. It's great to be with you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Same same here. I look forward to seeing you down the line. Absolutely. Have a great day and thank you for all the support. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards, and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified financial planner certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.